This is Strange New Trek, a podcast about the life and times of Captain Christopher Pike. And now, your hosts. Space is apparently full of attractive redheads, which coincidentally is my favorite kind of redhead. (laughs) But just like in real life, a pretty redhead often comes with secrets and dangers. I'm your host, Jeremy Vilmer, and joining for this week's recap of Lift Us Up Where Suffering Cannot Reach is Commander Dog and our chief engineer, Chris Nunian, saying what's happening, Chris. What's up, man? (laughs) Oh, just the temperature. How about you? Oh, I am excited to talk about this episode. Yeah. This one was good. A whiplashy kind of episode. It took me by surprise a little bit because I thought we might get a another fun romp episode, and that's not what we got. I will just say that early on the episode, once the kids showed up, my wife called the end. Yeah. Like, right off the bat, and I wasn't even seeing it coming. Women can pick that stuff <laughs> out, you know? <laughs> to get us started, you want to hit us with the captain's log. Captain's Log, Stardate 1943.7. We have arrived at the Magellan System, a minor star cluster at the edge of Federation space. I was last here 10 years ago on a rescue mission. When a pulsar nearly kills you, you tend not to forget. Our mission today is a routine cartographic survey. I expect it to be a lot quieter. So when I first heard them say Magellan, I, of course, thought of Ferdinand Magellan, the Portuguese explorer. But as I started to poke through notes on the episode, I noticed it was spelled M-A-J, and I suddenly began to wonder if the Magellan system might have been named after Major Barrett. Were you correct in that assumption? I haven't seen anything that says one way or the other, so I'm calling it correct until proven <laughs> otherwise. All right, so we, we start the episode. The Enterprise arrives in the Magellan system, and then the turbo lift is Pike, who is captain, by the way, in case there's any questions and nobody knows what rank he is, he's captain. And he warns Uhura, <laughs> who has been on security detail and has been learning an internet-friendly numbered list of security rules. <laughs> and he tells her to watch out for lesson seven because she learned it the hard way. Lion <laughs> teaches Uhura that threats never take a break after being a bit of a killjoy about Uhura taking a break. And the Enterprise is attacked by a small combat cruiser. Yeah, I'm already, like, right off the bat, already a fan of how this episode's going Last week, Uhura was dealing with Hemmer. This week, uh, she is making the rounds with Laan. I am all the way out here for it. Yeah, I kind of like having her <laughs> as like a touchstone character that gets to go from department to bar- department. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So the attacker disables the shuttle that it's firing on and engages grapplers to reel it in. This is just as the Enterprise arrives on the scene. Pike asks if they can disable the ship's weapons without blowing her to smithereens. Lyan instructs Uhura to charge the phasers at their lowest capacity, which I guess is like setting a microwave at power one. (laughs) But the attacker changes course and fires just as Uhura fires the phasers, resulting in severe damage to the attacker and causing it to spin out of control and crash onto a moon surface. Shankar receives the urgent hail from the shuttle, requesting immediate evacuation. Spock reports the shuttle's life support is failing. Pike orders them beamed aboard and leaves with Una to greet their passengers in the transporter room. As they arrive in the transporter room on deck six, just as Chief Kyle beams the shuttle passengers aboard, to Pike's surprise, 
the one to greet him there is Alora, a familiar face to him, though she greets him as Lieutenant Pike. Una asks, uh, you know her, Captain? Before <laughs> jokingly calling him Lieutenant <laughs> and kind of sticking him in the ribs a little bit. Two other passengers, an adult male and a young boy, get their bearings. Pike explains to them that he met Alora years ago. Alora recalls that he'd saved her from a shuttle that time, too, leading Una to comment that she had bad luck with shuttles. <laughs> but Alora's thinking it could be good luck, depending on how you look at it. She notes that his uniform was now clear, was very yellow. Okay, here it is. <laughs> yeah. And he explains that it was actually gold because, uh, he, you know, he's a captain now. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> Alora well, formally thanks the captain on behalf of Majalis. Pike, now stammering, introduces Una, his number one, and then that kind of breaks down into some silliness as well. <laughs> now, an interesting thing that I discovered about Alora, because as I was watching this, I was like, man, she looks really familiar. And it turns out she was the teenage girl who almost got everybody killed by wanting to go after the dog in the remake of Dawn of the Dead. A movie I have seen a number of times because I love zombie movies. <laughs> number one offers to escort everybody to the ready room for a debriefing, but the older male insists on going immediately to the medical facility, as the boy seems to have been injured. Pike asks if uh, he was the boy's father, and the male coldly replies, only in the biological sense, which was a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a... Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, uh, all right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We switch over now to a sick bay where Dr. Mbinga is reading to his daughter, Rakia, and she's a little put out because it seems to her that he's just read the same paragraph from the book twice in a row. Um, he has to explain to her that, you know, he has her set to just kind of come and go, and he has to pick up from memory where they were. And in the middle of this conversation, she just kind of gets transported back into the buffer. Yeah, so what must feel like instantaneous stuff to her might be weeks between readings her and Benga. Yeah. Uh, it just put another layer on me feeling bad for that dude so much. I feel really bad for him. And it also kind of is making me dislike this part of the story just because it's such a torturous thing, you know, but I'm waiting to see what the payoff is before I, before I jump down its throat too hard. I think we're going to get the start of the payoff, like outside of this episode. I think you're correct. I'm sure we'll come to that as we, you know, <laughs> I'm uh, sure we will <laughs> descend through the story a little bit more. Laura <laughs> explains to Pike that the boy they were transporting back to Magellus was a holy figure chosen by lottery to embody the Magellan people's maxim science, service, sacrifice. Yeah, he's known as the uh, first servant. Yes. The attackers demanded the boy's surrender, but Magellus would pay any price for his return. In sickbay, Chapel repairs the damage done to the first, oh, here we go, first servant's head with a subdermal scalpel. But his father, father in the biological sense, demands that she keep the butcher's knife away from him. Apparently, this kid is full of implants and all sorts of stuff and quantum mechanics, and they have healing down to the cellular level that would really, like, really, really super advanced medically and scientifically, we can assume, based off of that. But, you know, as this thing's kind of going, we can tell the dad, dad's a little sketchy about their relationship, and this kid is going to be an obnoxious pain in the ass. I mean, it kind of makes sense that he's a little bit detached, given... Circumstances, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, just, I hate when they put kids and stuff. Yep. There was an episode I saw of Buck Rogers when I was like eight or nine years old where they had an alien adult and child, but it turned out that the child actor was playing the parent in the... 
adult actor was playing the child and when that discovery comes up, the kid completely switches how he was playing the role and it comes off just like an ass, just like this precocious, like you wanted to choke him and throw him in a river kind of person. <laughs> and even as a kid, I hated child actors. It was just, I was just like, you suck at your job. <laughs> I don't believe that anybody's paying you to do this. Your <laughs> uncle must have a, must have a casting company. That's all I can think of. So we uh, switch over to the moon where the ship that was attacking the shuttle crashed. Laan and Uhura cutting their way inside the attacking ship. Uhura's scans show no life readings, but Laan warns her to be careful with the tricorder. Alora steps inside with Spock and recognizes a token on the deck. Alora explains that the token is an oath coin given to Lenarian guards when they swear an oath to protect the life of the first servant. One of the guards has betrayed his oath and is conspiring with the alien, calling and kidnap him. So we kind of discovered that there's two, I'm not warring factions, but two factions close to each other that are kind of, some are against each other and some aren't. And, you know, some of their guards come from this world. So they have kind of a complex relationship between this colony world and uh, Magellan. In the Magellan capital, Alora's aide explains her schedule, and Alora asks for the Lenarian guards to be summoned. Whoa, here, here I missed a piece. Um, there's an emergency, and Pike uh, snaps his phaser, getting ready to pull it out and draw on him. But I did miss a piece there. Chris, anything jump out at you? What did I miss here? Oh, this is the part where, I mean, once they find that Pike just kind of Says, look, man, uh, you and the boy can uh, you be on the Enterprise as long as you need to be. But she had her duties on the planet, and um, that a peaceful transition to power was a cornerstone of their society. Hey, kind of like ours. Hey, well, yeah. I see the parallels right here. I mean, except we don't have kids involved normally. Well, I like <laughs> to keep it that way, too, you know. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> In the Magellan capital, a city floating over the surface of the planet, Alora's aides explain her schedule involving an opening speech, a tree planting, a f and a festival of gratitude. Pike can now see why Alora could not stay away. Uh, Alora adds more, one more item to the agenda and asks for the Lenarian guards to be summoned. Ready to shake the tree and see what falls out, Pike asks, and Alora replies that she is. As she moves ahead, Pike unsnaps his holster on his phaser, ready to draw at a moment's notice. They keep kind of giving Pike these little cowboy moments throughout the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. They're subtle, but they're there. If you if you grew up on Westerns like I did, there are things that are very, very old Western about his character. Especially in this one. Yeah. We cut back to Sick Bay, and Spock approaches the Elder Gamal and asks for a word in private. He asks if he recognizes the device he found, and it looks like one of those things that your ex-wife would bring to you to scratch her head with, and it had like, you know, copper wires with little things on the end, except this thing is apparently some kind of neural dampener that they were going to use on the kid, not a head scratcher. <laughs> well, at least that's what I took from it. Yeah. It looked like that to me, too. Yeah. <laughs> the, so you know the thing I'm talking about then, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Alora uh, asks the Lenarian guards to renew their vows and present their oath coins, but one of them pushes her aside and uses his weapon to vaporize one of the other guards. So Pike and him kind of go into fisticuffs, and then Pike tackles him and stabs him with his own blade. Now, I am suspicious of anybody who tackles a would-be assassin and kills him. 
I'm also suspicious that Pike would play such a heavy role in all of it to begin with, honestly, given how he's Mr. Prime Directive. Follow the rules, guy. Yeah. <laughs> now, to be fair, this doesn't have to do with the Prime Directive. They already know about the Federation. Uh, they already know about starships and war drives and all that good stuff. But I don't know, man. It does seem that he's taking a rather lead role in something that an entire battalion is already hired for. Plus a lead role in a thing that does not involve him at all. Well, and we got to keep in mind, this world, as they point out several times, is not part of the Federation. Yeah. So that makes it even weirder, at least for right this second, why he would be involved at all. But there's a little bit of a reason. Yeah, there is. And, you know, again, this there's some whiplash in this episode by the time you hit the end of it. You know, there's a little like, oh, okay. All right, so now we cut back to the ship. Uhura's up there quickly woofing down her food when she's approached by fake Kirk, who reminds her to chew her food and not just straight up swallow it. <laughs> Word had gotten around that she was on rotation with Leanne, and he suggests telling the security chief that she deserved a full hour for a food break. Land stands up, stares daggers right at him, and says that he could tell her that himself. And they, fake Kirk actually pulls a nice spot here. I, I didn't expect him to have this much character. He says he would, but he goes out of his way to avoid conflict. <laughs> For now. For now, yeah. Wait till he meets some flying ravioli monsters. That'll change. <laughs> Land produces a crate full of uh, data chips that she, quote unquote, liberated from the crash site. <laughs> well, she knows it was against protocol. She cites lesson six, know when to bend the rules. And she knows that Starfleet would not have approved it. So she couldn't pull them through the ship's translator. And it would have taken weeks anyways. So she hands them off to her and basically says, here, uh, you know, translate these. <laughs> and I'm always waiting because I we saw it in the trailers where Uhura says, that's not how linguistics work. And I'm expecting that to come up in every episode because I see them start to set up a situation where she can say that. So I was a little disappointed that it wasn't used again here. <laughs> but that's just just me from that kind of like wanting to hit the same joke over and over kind of thing. We go back to the first servant's injuries uh, having been healed here. And Mbinga asks him all a, a hypothetical question. I can never remember what is the name of this disease. Signochemia. Mass cell signochemia. Yeah, so he asks him, ask him all about this disease, and the dude's like, yeah, I mean, there, there's probably a way to treat it, but I'm not going to share it with you, and you can't send the patient to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we also have some weird, useless sense of prime directive here where it says, oh, yeah, you can totally save lives, but you shouldn't. Yeah, that was aggravating. It's like, bro, I just rescued you from whatever problems you were having. And here you are not wanting to return the favor. Cool. Cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. <laughs> I hate these interpretations of uh, what is that non, what do they call it? I can't remember now where they're just like, oh yeah, you can't get involved. I think they get overblown into, oh, you can't do things to help, which just strikes me as the dumbest stuff I've ever heard. Yeah. Cause if I'm in Bingham, I'm like, bro, you don't have to tell me how you do it. I don't even care about that. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, I can turn my back. I let all sorts of things happen that I'm not looking at, you know? She ain't even supposed to be in the transporter buffer, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. Anybody anybody who signs Una finds out about that, I'm fired anyway. So, you know, come on. 
Well, it's going to be a couple of years before I get uh, busted out of the uh, top doctor on the ship. So it's coming anyway. Who cares? <laughs> and this is my kid. <laughs> That's kind of like the more important thing because, like, you get the sense that Mbinga would drop out of Starfleet to save his kid's life. Yeah. So anyhow, there's there's a couple little things there that kind of annoy me a little bit, but we'll we'll dance around that for now. <laughs> so we cut back over to the Magellan capital. And Pike asked Laura if she should see a doctor. She assures him, using his first name, that she was fine, but is shaken by the encounter. She had thought she had known Kier and thought him loyal, and begins to wonder if there were others like him amongst the guards. Pike again offers an armed guard outside the door. She declines, but Pike reminds her that he didn't save her from a pulsar just to let her get killed by a guard. <laughs> she admits that by saying he could come with her instead as she kisses him. It's the hair, man. The taller his hair gets, the more chicks like him, you know? <laughs> I know, was it Johnny Bravo at this point? <laughs> yeah, it's close to a full Johnny Bravo right now. <laughs> there was a bunch of uh, bunch of memes going around on Facebook about his hair in this one. Like, you're right, it, it just gets, like, kind of taller every episode now. <laughs> yeah. I saw one of those memes where it was his head and hair had replaced the Paramount, the mountain in the Paramount logo. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a bunch of them this weekend. Most of the ones I've seen have been on Twitter, though. All right. In bed later that evening, Pike confesses that he may have been hitting on Alora the first time they met. Uh, she kind of laughs it off because he was absolutely hitting on her the first time they met. Yeah. And th this scene is what made me realize why he felt like he was he had to be so invested in uh, the guard situation. Because he was thinking with. Um, yep, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Thinking yeah. with downstairs instead of upstairs. That's right. The little captain, <laughs> the little captain was piloting the ship. Little Pike was piloting that <laughs> ship. <laughs> the P in Pike stands for, oh, wait, never mind. Let's see here. <laughs> All those jokes just kind of made me lose track. Both. Okay. So they both agree um, and meant to thinking about each other from time to time. We got to pause on this line that he says right here. Okay. So he calls it crazy that they met again. Now. She agrees that it did seem unlikely, but they both thought about each other now and again. Now, I took this line to mean that she put him in this position again. Like, this was not a uh, random offhand chance meeting. I don't think it ever really specifies that that's the case, but... No, but you know what? I hadn't really, really put a lot of thought into it, but it makes total sense that she knew he was uh, captain of the Enterprise. And, uh, you know, decided to light a little nostalgia fire under his ass. Recreated the, the conditions of their first meeting in a way. Yeah. I could totally see that. He says he always wondered what happened to that girl who couldn't fly a shuttle. She corrects him by saying that she knew how to fly it. It just flew it in the wrong place. Pike had a feeling they recognized something in each other and thought it was a shame that they never got to follow through with it. Laura admits that she had not been expecting them to reconnect again, but it's rare rare to know what lay in the future. <laughs> well, she doesn't know about old Pizza Face Pike. No, she does not, not yet. And um, <laughs> you know, here here's the thing. I mean, well, I guess no, because we cut back to Discovery. He he told Vina goodbye, like it was a permanent goodbye. When she said, you have to let us all go. So I was thinking, you know, dude's just kind of leaving checks, just like, and I got one on that planet and one on that planet. <laughs> to be fair, at this point, he did not know that Spock was going to 
take over the Enterprise and take him back after his injury. Yeah, too bad the time crystal didn't show him that part. Right? Yeah, those time crystals have bad sense of timing. But again, like, even in this situation, she tries to play it off like she doesn't, she didn't know that they were going to reconnect again. But, like, I don't know. I can't think that that's the truth. Okay, so Alora, who comes across as this really sweet and kind girl, you know, with a lot of um, responsibilities on her, but, you know, very nice and, you know, like, she seems really honest and everything. She really kind of starts to seem a little more complex after you watch the full episode and pick up on some things. Yeah, which made me, like, revisit that line that he says, that's crazy that we met again or whatever it was. Is it? Is it crazy? Not if your suspicion <laughs> is correct. And now, to be fair, like I said, it doesn't really give you the full story here. So we never know for sure, I don't think, uh, whether that line was just a throwaway line or if there's some truth to it. The conversation they're having uh, in bed leads to Pike kind of insinuating what he's seen in his future. And then they they talk about that, which... I don't know why, but I always expect Pike to keep this a secret. And I'm actually, the fact that he tells people about it, I think I like that better. At this point, though, he's only told two people. Yeah, but I mean, the fact that it comes up at all. He's told Una and he's told Alara. Yeah, but I, I was expecting them to be playing this as like an over-tortured pizza face vision in every episode. And they haven't really done that. Well, we mentioned that in the first episode, like, yo, we've seen it in this episode. We know that every time he sees a reflection of himself, that's what he sees. We don't need to keep revisiting that fact. We can just assume from now on that every time he looks in the mirror, he sees Pizza Face Pike. He's haunted. I mean, we get that. They've done it. So no problems there. Yeah. Um, see, that's one of those things. Here we are six episodes into a 10 episode season. And we've had six good to great episodes in a row. So it seems to me like they really know what they're doing and they know not to beat us up with it too much, you know. But they discuss that and then she brings up something that if he were to end up in that situation and came there, they may have medical technology that could, uh, that could help. Yeah, I noticed that too. Mm -hmm, but he would have to give up the Federation. Then she apologizes for overstepping. Uh, he assures her that she didn't overstep. And she promises that you know he would be welcome there and says it's another part of the future to consider. And, you know, it's, it sounds as good as an option as he may have. Or Talos 4, either way. Yeah, you know, either one. One of those has got to be the right one, right? Uhura seems to have found the needle in the haystack. Lon asked her to find, and she says that she had translated the alien dialects. And then um, Lon is, I just, she is such a grumpy ass, you know? She accuses <laughs> her of doing the bare minimum of what she was asked to do. And Uhura's like, no, I actually went through each of these things and dug all the way down and found out that these people have the same language and kind of goes into this whole thing. And then Lon's like, oh, we need to, you know, let everybody know about this. And Uhura's like, great, I'll be in the library while you do that. And Lon's like, no, I think, you know, you you made the finding, you know, yeah, we did this as a team, but you found it. Now you get to tell the captain. I didn't take that as Lon being um, old crusty security chief. <laughs> I just, <laughs> even though she's not old, 
Uh, I just took that as um, that whole scene as like La'an recognizes the work that Uhura put in and she should be the one to present it to take credit for it. Sure. Sure. But that, that was after she accused her of doing bare minimum. <laughs> you know, we're going to swap back over to sick bay for a moment. And Mbinga is carrying a lunch tray into the room. At least I assume it was a lunch tray. Uh, and here's laughter coming out of uh, his office. I guess that's his office area, right? That, that's what I was thinking or something. It was like kind of a closed off little private area with the chair that his daughter sits in. Yeah, that's where the um, medical transport is. Okay. So I don't think it's necessarily his office, but. But it is like closed off and kind of yeah secretive or whatever, private. Yeah. So he goes in and he finds the first servant in Rakia playing space hopscotch. <laughs> I'm guessing, you know, the first servant's like, you know, oh, you know, we, I made this with noble gases and the kid shows that he's smart. And he thought that, you know, of ways to protect the daughter while he did this. And then, um, his father comes in and, you know, accuses him of showing off. This is after Ricky is like being back into the transport buffer. That scene there was, I, that one just kind of bothered me a little bit because the little the, the kid stuff is starting to bother me a little bit now, you know, just in general. Well, my thing with that scene is how did Mbinga not flip the hell out over that? Dude, because I am <laughs> I think Mbinga smokes a lot of pot because he is one of the most chill people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Dude is just like, he's like 100% chill all the time, even when he should be flipping out. Now, he does say early in the episode that he basically has her on a timer. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe I've jumped to conclusions about this scene right here. Like, he expected her to be out of the buffer and in her seat. But, I don't know, man. Given how secretive, secretive he is about the whole thing, I would have expected him to um, react a lot more harshly. Yeah. And I was assuming the kid let Rukia out, honestly. I didn't think it was... I didn't think it was part of the regular schedule that he keeps, you know? Oh, wait. No, you're right. The kid even explains like, oh, I figured out that you had something in the transporter buffer. No, you're right. That wasn't part of the the plan. So that even proves my point more. Like, how did this dude not freak the hell out when he realized his daughter was out of the buffer outside of the schedule and um, playing with another kid? Yeah, yeah, that's all I can figure is, dude, it's just, like, super chill. Except when Hammer's, like, pushing buttons and stuff. That's, like, when he gets, like, okay, now you've gone too far. <laughs> Pike returns the ship, annoyed at having to be called to hear a very urgent report in person. Una explains that it was probably best that he find out without a Laura hearing. Uhura presents her report, explaining that she had traced the language of the kidnappers to a non-Federation colony, Prospect 7, a Class L world a couple of light years away. It was a barren world, barely above subsistence levels. Pike is aware, having learned of this from Allura, but Uhura reveals uh, her surprise. The dialect spoken was linguistically similar to that of the Magellans, which meant the alien colony was in fact an offshoot of Magellus. Laanne asks why anyone would leave Paradise to settle on Prospect 7, and Spock adds that if the colony was in fact Magellan, why would Allura and Gamal tell them otherwise? Pike knows that the Magellans did not trust outsiders. Saving Allura from the Pulsar had led to an overture to join the Federation. He is convinced that there had to be a reasonable explanation, just as Mbinga calls from sickbay. Gamal and the First Servant are trying to leave the ship. 
I I had started to take notes on this, and then I wrote, "No, just go to Memory Alpha." Because <laughs> too many too many things flip flopped here to like stay on top of as I'm like rushing to write notes down. Pike rushes to the transporter room where Kyle is refusing to beam them down. Gamal demands that Pike order his transporter chief to do so. And Pike thought they had agreed they were safer on the ship, but Gamal does not agree. Suddenly, both Gamal and the first servant are beamed off the ship. Pike <laughs> accuses Kyle of doing it, and Kyle's like, no, dude, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. Kyle insists that he didn't do it, and someone had locked on their signal while the shields were down. Pike calls the bridge, asking if there were any ships nearby. Luna reports one, another combat cruiser that's trying to flee. Suddenly, Gamal is returned to the ship alone and asks where the first servant is. Pike orders a red alert. On the bridge, Spock reports the first servant's life signs aboard the ship uh, and that they are unable to beam him back with uh, the cruiser's shields raised. Shadkar reports that he has hailed several times with no response. Ortega's plans to remind them that the Enterprise is bigger, and Pike orders Mitchell to secure the cruiser and a tractor beam to prevent them from going to warp. She grabs them with a tractor beam, and they attempt to go to warp anyways. Mitchell's increased, uh, forced to increase the power, and Spock warns that if they still try to go to warp, it could destroy the cruiser. Pike is unwilling to risk harming the first servant and the kidnappers and orders the tractor beam disengaged. As Mitchell does so, it's too late, and the strain causes the cruiser to explode. And I don't think I've ever seen them use a tractor beam to destroy a ship before. That was kind of a novel, novel result. Well, it was accidental. It was, it was, but you know, you never think of these, like you see that where they grab a ship with like a tractor beam, but you never think like, oh, well, I guess if they resist, they could just kill everybody on board. Now, Laura is horrified when Pike informs her of the loss of the cruiser and the first servant. She says this means their world is over. If the first servant does not ascend, Majalis would fall from the sky. And I guess this is where we need to point out that this entire world is made up of like floating islands and buildings and, you know, half this world is up in the air, you know, or most of this world is up in the air. I'm pretty sure this is the point where my wife just half-heartedly was listening and was like, oh, they're going to do a sacrifice. That's a child sacrifice right there. <laughs> yeah. They, they pull it out pretty big right here. I mean, they kind of, they kind of lean on it pretty heavy now, you know? Yeah, I still I still didn't know that that's where we were going. Yeah. I don't ever think they're going to do bad things to kids, but here we are. Well, yeah, I, you know, as we get there, I'm going to have to give them credit for doing it because, like, you don't think they're going to, and then they do. Pike is kind of incredulous and confused, and they ask how one child could prevent such calamity, and uh, Laura basically hangs up on him. She's like, nope. I have to assume that they don't have a receiver you slam down like you used to when you hung up on people. So it doesn't feel that good when you do it, you know? Right. Because I have noticed when I get mad at people and I hang up, it just doesn't feel the same. <laughs> Pike then turns to his crew and demands to know how someone could have beamed the first servant off the ship. After a momentary silence, Uhura speaks up and says that she knows and glances pointedly at Gamal. In the ready room, Gamal calls Uhura deluded and Laan defends her, saying that she was summarizing facts and drawing the logical conclusion. Pike asks Uhura to walk him through it. Uhura explains that one would need full bio patterns to beam someone off without their knowledge, which would have been collected in sick bay. Gamal had access to those bio patterns just before attempting to leave the ship. Gamal protests by saying he was the first servant's doctor, but Uhura points out that he had access not only to the first servant's patterns, but to his own. 
Laan adds that the cadet just demonstrated the dreaded lesson seven of security, leave no stone unturned. And I'm surprised neither one of us thought to go back and write down all the lessons. <laughs> but Laan <laughs> usually requires people to look under Mugatan breathing stones for that lesson. Uh, the Magato are just like gross. I'm trying to imagine what their breathing stones would be. <laughs> but it considers that unnecessary in this case, much to Ahura's relief. As Pike asks Gamal for the full story, Spock calls and asks Pike to join him on Deck 17, as he has discovered something the captain needs to see. Pike acknowledges and orders Land to escort the Elder to the brig. So Spock um, compliments First Servant's ingenuity, explaining that he had devised a method of generating his own subspace channel on an unused frequency. Spock thought there might be some utility in monitoring it, and then he reveals that the First Servant had sent a distress signal, something Pike knows is impossible as no one on the combat cruiser could have survived. But Spock thinks the First Servant wasn't on the cruiser when it exploded, in fact, he had been transported to where the signal originated, right here on the Enterprise. Inside one of the cargo crates on the deck, they find the first servant alive and well. Pike prepares to take him to sick bay, but the first servant insists that he must go to Majalis for the Ascension. So it's when they started really leaning on the word Ascension is when I started going like, oh, something's not right. Yeah. Like really, really not right. So it looks like his, um, only in the biological sense, dad tried to save him but the kid was um obviously didn't know what was gonna necessarily happen to him for sure uh but he devised a plan to get himself found and sent back yeah it took his duty super seriously pike calls the bridge to inform uh, laura that they had news that she'd want to hear on Majalis, the ascension ceremony is in full swing as cheering crowds gather to greet the first servant Pike stands with Laura witnessing it, but he has some pointed questions like, for instance, how did the fate of Majalis rest on the head of one child, which Laura says is complicated and sacrosanct? Why would Gamal kidnap his own son, or why she never mentioned that Prospect 7 was not an alien colony? Laura looks uh, uncomfortable with the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I can yep. imagine. I'd be uncomfortable about that, too. There's like a lot of deception and stuff going on here. So we go back to the brig and Gamal, and um, they're trying to, you know, ascertain like what laws he may have broken or what kind of was the plan. And then it looks like he was going to use the neural dampener to prevent his son from being able to fulfill his duties. So it looks like Dad, even though Dad was pretending to be real super standoffish, was not and was trying to figure out ways to get his son out of whatever's coming. So he asks if he can see his son again, and this is when Una, who was being a hard ass with him, is like, nope, Pike's already taken him to the planet, and dude just kind of just kind of folds up. You know, just kind of like, oh. And then um, he kind of goes through like how he violated his own beliefs and his laws, trying to save his son. And she's like, save your son from what? Now we go back to the first servant going through the crowd to the quote-unquote sacred chamber. Lore explains that the Magellan Ruling Council has allowed an exception for Pike. Though he's an outsider, he can witness the Ascension Ceremony because he saved the boy's life and because she wanted him to be a part of it. When Pike asks what he's a part of, the First Servant approaches, inviting Pike to join him at the Ascension. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Back on the ship, Shankar reports that he's unable to reach the captain 
as the planet was putting out an electromagnetic field that blocked communications. Una orders Spock to prepare a landing party to beam to the surface, but Spock reports that the same impulse that blocked communications would also block transporters. Una is incredulous that they were unable to reach the captain at the exact moment they needed to. And see, there was something about the way she said that too, where you get the sense that this isn't an accident. This is somebody set this up specifically that nobody would be able to get a hold of him. Yeah. Which I don't understand why Alora would have done that. She seemingly knows Pike, maybe not like every little thing about him, but like, come on. You think this is a guy that's going to watch you sacrifice a kid and not try to do anything about it? Come on now. Maybe she was hoping that his sense of duty and everything would override his horror at what's coming and that if he was there when it happened, he'd maybe understand it. I, and trust me, I'm, I'm going more than halfway here. <laughs> so inside the sacred chamber, Pike stands in the background as they approach the throne. It's attached to a number of power generators. Alora kneels before the first servant. Asking the ritual question, do you freely offer this gift of self to the people of Majalis? And he says, with joy and gratitude, I do. She says, do you freely choose your fate? And just as he's about to give the ritual answer, the first servant sees the bundle being carried on a stretcher by the Lenarian guards. And it kind of falters. It kind of, kind of bucks a little bit here. Yeah. He's like, I, wait, I know what that is. Um, I don't think I want to do this actually. Maybe, maybe, maybe can I have another day to think about this? Pike kind of bucks on his own, too, a little bit. And two of the guards, like, put spears up to his throat, basically. And then Alora's like, no, 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 let him, let him see. It's okay if he checks it out. And he pulls back the sheet and exposes a desiccated corpse of a child, a dried out corn husk of a, of what's left of a child. Yeah, that was... Ah, uh, not cool. Yeah. The guards hold him back to prevent him from interfering, as Laura says he has sacrificed himself willingly for the people of Majalis. Pike is able to overpower his guards, holding him, but one standing near the throne, which now holds the first servant, and he's like plugged into a bunch of cables and crap, smacks uh, Pike in the face with her weapon and knocks him out cold. Pike comes to inside Alora's residence and rises to leave. The guards block him, but Alora assures them that the ascension's complete and there's nothing he can do. And she tells Pike that he can go now as well. And he intends to do so after rescuing the kid. And she stops him and says, hey, if you if you take him out of there, it's just going to kill him. Pike, I don't know, he almost like he almost just kind of crumbles on his own because like he just walks back to her bed and sits down. Just like, where do I go? Yeah, I can imagine. Um. He doesn't know about the electromagnetic interference surrounding where he's at, but like he seems to know that whatever he might want to do is just not going to work. And I'll admit, even right here, I thought, no, they have his body scan. When Pike beams away, the kid's going to join him. Yeah, that's um, that's not what happens. No, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so Pike just kind of... You know, says why? Why do you? Why would you need a child to do this? You know, and she says she's not even sure why, or, or kind of what, or how this started, or anything. And then Pike is just obviously horrified, and she asks him, "Well, can you say that one child doesn't suffer for the Federation? You know, for everybody else to get along, which is really 
Kind of like one of those uh, armor armor piercing questions, you know. But it's bullshit. Not directly, but somewhere a child paid a price for some advancement that the Federation made. Oh, come on. There is a huge difference. Is she equivocating? Absolutely. It is not an apple to apple answer. I I will give you that. But she does hit him with a question that's enough to kind of shut him up. It shouldn't though. Pike's smarter than that. Yeah, except he's kind of yeah, he's over it, man. I mean, don't you think at this point here's this chick that he was thinking, "Hey, you know, I really like her. She really likes me. Here's this beautiful planet and then maybe in a few years when What's going to happen to me is going to happen. I can come back here and maybe they can fix me. And then finding out they're a bunch of child murderers. So Pike kind of gives her the, all right, so I'm getting out of here. That was the other thing that this is how I realized that she had been blocking him from hearing from anybody or leaving was that she told me he could go. So basically she had shields or pulses or something put up until the ceremony and everything were done. Yeah. I didn't realize that until the end of it. And I was like, man. (laughs) <laughs> so Pike is like, all right, I'm, I'm taking off. He goes, well, I'm going to report you, right? As as soon as I get back to the ship, I'm reporting you. And she's like, we're not part of the Federation. You have no jurisdiction here. But she kind of gives him, oh, hey, maybe one day in the future, you're going to feel differently. And his answer is just to beam away. In sickbay, Mbenga is approached by Gamal, who has uh, requested a transfer to Prospect 7. Gamal had once thought they were a planet of traitors committed to destroying the Magellan way of life, but they had tried to help him save his child. He had failed, but they had tried. He was adamant that it would not fail the next time. And so it's come to Mbenga to offer his help, one doctor to another, with the hypothetical patient with signokemia. He warns it won't be a cure, but Mbenga thinks it could be the first step to one. They bring up Rukia's medical file for Gamal to examine. We cut back to Pike in his quarters where he pours himself a stiff drink, stares out of a viewport, and we get a Deep Space Nine ending. (laughs) Oh, man. It went in a heavy direction real suddenly. It did, man. The whole episode, I was like, yeah, man, this this feels like a Trek episode. Like, this feels like not out of place uh, for the next generation, except until the end. On the next generation, the kid would have been saved, too. Yeah, they would have figured a solution out on next gen, you know. Kid would have been saved and uh, everybody on the planet would have been fine either way. Oh, we don't have to sacrifice kids no more. Sweet. Yeah, or if it had been on the original series, Kirk would have talked a computer to death and they wouldn't have to sacrifice kids anymore, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I thought that's the way this was going. Oh, yeah. See, when it first started, I thought, oh, we're getting another sexy romp episode. You know, it's going to be kind of playful and fun and, you know, we're going to get some pike background and then as the episode continued to play out it just kind of went further down and you're just like oh this was not going in the direction that i was expecting at all i mean because like i said i like i had the ending planned out i knew what was going to happen pike was going to be mad but he was going to beam the kid off because they had his body scan the people on the planet would realize oh we don't have to sacrifice kids no more and you know everybody's happy but um they did not take that route. No, no, sir. They did not. <laughs> All right. So let's um, let's get back to picking knits and yellow shirts or something here. Kind of get a palate cleanser uh, before we wrap up this episode. <laughs> oh, yes. Let's please do that. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris. What overall were your impressions of the episode this week? Yeah, man. Like I said, um, it, it felt like a Trek episode um, the whole time, <laughs> except for that unfortunate ending. But um, 
No, I mean, they're hitting like they promised us a plan of the week type show. And I feel like they're they're really hitting those strides, man. It's uh, I thought I wouldn't like the non-major arcs that, you know, Discovery is doing. But I'm finding out every week that, no, I don't actually mind it a whole lot. I wish they would get to the character development more still, but um, I understand why they don't. Yeah, and they they give us little pieces here and there. Um, but yeah, you're right. They they don't really focus on it, which you know, there was a time in early mid two thousands when I wished more shows did, you know, big arcs and, you know, one consistent story over a season. But now that we've had that for ten or fifteen years, I've kind of gotten back to, you know, there hasn't been a show made in ten or fifteen years where I can just throw on one episode and be cool with it. Yeah, you're right. Um, the the incremental changes in uh, any given character arc have been small enough to where if you miss an episode or two, you're not missing much. Yeah, you can you can kind of catch up that episode, you know. Now I'm sure there will be some episodes that further a character arc like strongly in that episode, and maybe those are episodes not to miss. But for the most part. Yeah, even uh, so we're up to what episode 6 now. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like maybe the Mbinga stuff in this episode where the the daughters in the in the buffer. That's like the only thing though that really like you might want a little bit of background on, but even in the the episode that you found it out on, there wasn't even a lot of background on that. I still feel like watching this episode you could get kind of all the background you need minus the fact that Una authorized like a, a soul power supply for this purpose. No, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely give you that. Uh, everything you needed to watch this episode is in this episode. Uh, you know, the Mbinga's daughter, Rakia, she, what you need to know about her, they, they set it all up in here. You know, there is not a previous episode of Pike and Alora, you know, on a crash shuttlecraft that we have to watch. Everything is all self-contained in here. So I, I enjoy it. I mean, I think, I think from what we've seen and we'll be able to tell later if I go back and rewatch the episodes for enjoyment later, but I think they know what they're doing with it. Yeah. Yeah. They got a good cast. They got good writers. They got good producers. You know, it just seems to me like they've got a real handle on what they're shooting for here. Yeah, for sure. I think I give every episode I've seen this season a nine or a 10 out of 10. I don't really think there's been anything bad in any of them. I mean, the only one that I really had huge issues with was when we found out Una was a Cylon. But other than that. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> that did come off a little little weird. I didn't care for that one too much. Yeah, that did come off a little weird. But still, I mean, it was, it was some character rev- revelation. No, you're right. That actually was a major character step forward. So now you're right. So yeah, there's, there's something there. Well, okay, Chris, <laughs> let's go ahead and begin to wrap up here. Where are we headed next week? Oh, so here's where we start out next week. We're on an icy warship and Binga and a bitter journalist are dating, but for whatever reason, his mission is to assassinate her. But then finally <laughs> they get married. <laughs> Dude, I, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to that episode right now. <laughs> That sounds amazing. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or theories you want to run by us, hit up our website at strangenewtrekshow.com or just strangenewtrek.com. 
Com. We, uh, I did find that I did buy that. Or follow the links in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app of choice. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. It's one small step for you, but a giant leap forward for this show. I want to give a special thanks to Miguel Esparza for the strange new Trek theme, and also to Will Harding for all his hard work over on our YouTube page. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to set your phasers to stun. And join us next time when we're on the next Planet of the Week. Mm-hmm.